Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest songwriter, producer, drummer, and multi-instrumentalist, Jim Valance. He's written and recorded some of the best classic Canadian music of all time. We'll be talking about much of that, as well as his musical adventures, and get some insights into the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. So thanks for joining me today, Jim. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Good to be here. Good. Well, thanks for coming on. I've, I've heard your name many times and we know people in common, but I've never met you in person. Uh, you've been one of those guys that's, I don't want to say a shadowy figure, but you weren't sort of in everybody's face. You weren't out there. You were kind of in the, in the background a little bit. Is that fair? Well, I think so. And, and, and even by design, I mean, I've had a front row seat for, for many years to, you know, people like, you know, Brian Adams, Stephen Tyler, Ozzy Osbourne. I've seen what it it's like to be famous and all the baggage that goes with that and uh, that certainly was never my my wish i mean it's just great to be the anonymous guy in the background and your name certainly is is well known but uh, that's right you didn't uh, you didn't embrace the the spotlight and sort of stand front and center in the stage but you were certainly a, an integral part of everything that was going on yes yeah, it's, nice, it's actually a nice place to be you know behind the scenes and you know very much part of the process but uh Except for industry peers, no one really knows who you are. Right. So you were born in Chilliwack, BC, which is about half an hour from where I am right now. I was. And then you uh, you moved around a little bit. I see here you lived in Vanderhoof and Terrace. My wife's from Terrace, actually. She would have lived there at the same time right. you did. Yeah, I was there from, let me think, uh, 67 till 70, I think. Well, that's interesting because in rural BC, is it? Is it I don't know, it's a special place and, it, and it's, uh, it has a special feel to it. And of course, all the bands, there was a whole circuit up there with Rupert and Kitimat and Terrace and Smithers and you know the whole drill, I right? I do, you yeah. Probably it was played all that. Musically. Yeah. So did you did you play up there and, and do gigs up there? Absolutely. I mean, my dad was a small town bank manager. So, I mean, right from elementary school on, we moved every two years. So I lived in a lot of small towns all over BC and we were living in Kamloops, when I was 11, and that's when I saw the Beatles on TV. And that, that really kind of sent me for a loop. I, I think I knew right at that minute, watching them on TV, that's what I wanted to do. So I started begging for a guitar or a drum kit or anything. And oh, wow. by the time we were living in Vanderhoof, um, I was 13, and I got my first drum kit and my first guitar and then started playing with some uh, guys from school. We put a band together. Right. And you're one of those guys that you tried everything. I was similar to that. You took piano lessons and you played drums. You played just try every instrument kind of guy. Yeah. I mean, I don't play any instrument really well, but I could get around on just about anything. Interesting. And how much formal training did you have? I had, I think, a year or two of piano when I was seven or eight years old. And then I did, I did a year at UBC, uh, University of British Columbia Music School. And I studied flute and piano and cello, so I had some formal training there. But I mean, you know, once you get out in the real world and playing with bands and so on, you know, the formal training, it means nice to have it, but it's, it's not something you put to use. I mean, as a session musician, I, I did quite a bit of session work uh, in my 20s, and that was all um, that required reading. So I was glad to have that skill. Yeah, you make an interesting point because... You know, yes, it's good to have some formal training, but really the pragmatic side of music when you get out there and play, that's that's a different animal than sort of reading the chart and playing what's on the paper. 
And sometimes I think you can know too much. Um, you know, some of the guys I, I worked with early on, I mean, they were way, way better musicians than I was. But I think, and I'm only slightly joking here, I, th I think they knew too many chords. And I mean, pop music, I think, is best when it's, you know, simple and accessible. And so I think I put my three or four chords to better use than they put their 10 or 12 chords. So honestly, I think you can know too much. And, and you know, the Beatles, Paul McCartney said, um, you know, one of the great things about the Beatles is we had no idea what we were doing. Right. So it was a constant, um, constantly searching and, and reaching. So I, I think there's something to be said for that as well. Yeah, you make an interesting point because, you know, the jazz guys, like, you know, the old joke, the, the new jazz doll, you wind it up and watch it starve. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, but they, they just don't sell that many records. I mean, you listen to the music and you go, wow, that's fantastic. The playing is great. The melodies are pretty cool. But, you know, generating any interest in that is really tough to do. Yeah, I mean, really, it depends what you want to achieve uh, career-wise. And I have nothing but respect for, for those guys. And, Absolutely. But I just took a different route. I just decided that, okay, I'm not ever going to play as good as them, so I better just play smarter, you know, and yeah. try to figure out how, how to play the game. Well, and plus for you, I mean, you came up at the at an interesting and exciting time, right? I mean, the early bands, some of the most fun times are, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s when you're in a band. It was the coolest thing in the world to be in a band at that time and play some rock songs and cool songs, right? And there was so much coming at you. I mean, you know, sort of 67 to 69, Hendrix, yeah. um, you know, Clapton in, in Cream, Janis Joplin, uh, you know, the Beatles had some amazing work, you know, from Sgt. Pepper to the White Album and Abbey Road. It was yeah. a very, very um, inspiring time to be a young musician because there was just so much coming out, so much amazing yeah. music. And the British Invasion stuff, too. Absolutely. There was lots of other good stuff, right? Yeah. So like like a thousand other kids, you had stars in your eyes. You wanted to be part of the music biz. Was that your, your goal? I, yeah. I don't think I ever had any, I mean, especially early on, no aspirations for, for success, but just to be playing in a band, you know, I mean, later in my career, you know, I got to work with some amazing people. None of it compares to that very first time in the high school band room, you know, playing <laughs> drums with another musician for the very first time, just me and this guy, yeah. Woody Whitmore, you know, just guitar and drums and very first spark of creativity with another human being. It, it's, it's just magical. And I mean, yeah. I was just bitten from that moment on. There's nothing else I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And and I often ask people like when you when you are able to make a living and and in your case a very very good living, was it was there a defining moment or was it planned or was it just happenstance or just an accident? I don't think anything's planned. I mean, hmm. again, just to go way back, I mean the first time I got paid was uh, $2.50 for a community center in Vanderhoof and and you know that was an amazing moment. Like really yeah. we get paid to do this? And then <laughs> From that moment on, I mean, you can't plan anything. You can just, you know, work really hard and, you know, apply yourself every minute of every day and certainly have have goals. And and then you, you once you reach them, you make new goals and you just keep kind of leapfrogging forward. So, you know, nothing was planned. It just all, not that it's accidental because it was hard work, but um, right. you can wish it, but you, you have to, you have to make it happen. 
yeah, and I guess happenstance does factor in, but I always, I'm always curious about the break that, you know, what was your break? Because, you know, there's a big leap between playing a high school dance and making 250 and then thinking I can make a living out of this. Well, you know, there's no, there's one break, there's a series of breaks and um, you can look at it a couple of ways, Um, you know, doors open or opportunities present themselves. And I think there's, um, you know, you have to know when there's an opportunity. Um, I, I have a saying I like to use about some of the people I've met over the, the course of my life is they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Mm. So you have to know when the right door is open and you have to know which door to go through. I mean, you can, you can mess that up too, but, yeah. you know, I just think back, you know, a fellow named Tom Kinleyside, um, fellow musician in Vancouver, uh, hired me to play, uh, I think it was a wedding reception or bar mitzvah, I can't remember which. And he liked my drumming, and then he recommended me to this band, Sunshine, who were kind of a jazz rock fusion band in Vancouver. And the leader of that band was Bruce Fairburn, who right. went on to you know, produce Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and ACDC. So you know that connection with Bruce opened a number of doors for me. And then, of course, right. just by accident, running into Brian Adams. Uh, he was 18. I ran into him at Long and McQuaid in Vancouver. Hmm. And, we exchanged phone numbers and again, no idea what was going to come of it, but you know, we got together and worked hard. And so these, you know, these opportunities present themselves. Like you say, there is some happenstance or happy accidents or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, but you have to know when it's right there in your face and then just go 200% into it. Well, yeah. And of course, Tom Keenly's side is well known in the Vancouver music scene. He's a a staple and he's been around for many years and then you got so you got connected in the vancouver music scene and of course bruce fairburn um and he sadly passed away in 1999 but tell me tell me about bruce tell me about bruce fairburn and your experience with him well bruce is one of the smartest guys i've i've ever known um again he just you know knew how to how to make things happen he was a, a brilliant organizer uh you know talented musician I mean, he was responsible for getting me involved with Aerosmith, among other things. And then Bruce and I were in the band Prism. Um, yeah, you, you started with that, yeah. Yeah, Bruce and I were the sort of the, the co-leaders of, of Prism yeah. and in terms of production and songwriting. Were you guys um, friends? Sorry? Were you guys friends? Very good friends. Very, yeah. very good friends. So we, you know, we met when, I, when Tom Kingleyside brought me to the uh, Sunshine Project. That's when I first met yeah. Bruce. That was the summer of 1973 yeah. and we just kept in touch and when prism came along um bruce called me up and said look we he didn't hire me as a drummer he just said do you have any songs and i said mm. actually i do and i i gave them some songs they had a different drummer at the time and then just long story short as as my songs became kind of the centerpiece of the album uh, I, be I became a member of the band and then bruce and i mm. stayed in touch over the years in fact, when he passed away, he was doing a project at, at my studio with uh, with the group. Yes. Well, and it still says it still says it was unknown causes. Like, what 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 caused his death? It was in 1999, right? He was still a relatively young man and fairly healthy, from what I understand. Well, my my brother in law uh, dropped dead at 39. At, wow. Just didn't work one day. So, you know, um, you you don't know when your time's going to come. It's just uh, boom. Yeah. There it is. No explaining. Yeah. And it's still listed as unknown. I've never researched it, but um, yep. I'm mm. going to assume it was a heart attack, same as my brother-in-law, I'm going to guess. Yeah. Okay. 
And so you got involved with, because uh, the early prism, like, uh, you know, I was in high school at the time. I'm a little bit younger than you, not too much, but uh, I was in high school when that album came out and I, I loved it. I mean, Spaceship Superstar and Open Soul Surgery and stuff. We listened to that over and over again. It was fantastic. And there was always a bit of confusion around that first album because the, you know, you've got um, the picture on the back of the album's a little bit confusing. And then um, Tom, uh, Tom and Jack Lavin were involved in some measure. And then, so the band was kind of uh, formulated, how should I say, right? Like put together as a studio band kind of thing. Well, it, it, you know, you're, I'm, as, I'm as confused as you are because there, there really wasn't, as the album was being made, there really wasn't a band. Okay. So we, we just pulled in various players, like uh, you might know some of the names, local local players like Graham Coleman, Dave Bikel, uh Peter Baring, um, some of the uh, members of the previous group, Sunshine, like bass player Richard Christie, but uh, Steve Pugsley also played bass, and so did Jack Lavin, and guitars. Uh, Lindsay Mitchell was the main guitar player, but David Sinclair also played some guitars. Right. And then the horn players were um, uh, Bruce Faber, uh, Tom Kinneyside, and, and Ralph Apple. So yep. I'm, I'm going to guess just off the top of my head, there's probably a, a dozen uncredited musicians on that first wow. album and really? then it came, came time to um to tour uh, a band was put together originally it was ab bryant on bass but just before the tour uh ab joined chilliwack so jack lavin no i think tom played bass tom lavin i think came well i heard that bass. but then i talked to jack and he claims that he played bass on the recording yeah he did part of the recording. not all of it but like i say there was there were a number of bass players on the album. There was uh, Jack, Steve Pugsley, and Richard Christie. And then, but Tom ended up in the picture on the back of the album. He did. And and the very first small tour, uh, we opened for Hart in um, Medford, I think, and we opened for Foreigner in Seattle on their first um, American tour. And a few other dates, we played the Peony, the Coliseum. Yeah. And that original band was. Uh, me, Tom Lavin, Lindsey Mitchell, uh, John John um, Hall on keyboards and horn section, hmm. and then right after that first tour, I, I I quit the band. I just you know five guys in a rental car, <laughs> in, yeah, yeah, staying in bad sure. motels and eating <clears throat> tacos from Seven yeah. Eleven. You know, just uh, it just didn't uh, didn't work for me. So. A few questions about that. Why Rodney Higgs? Why did you have a, a, a pseudonym? Oh, that was just silly. Um, we was all it? had okay. nicknames back then. Yeah. Um, we sort of joked around. Like Peter Baring was Captain Bull Weevil. And anyway, my nickname yeah. was Rodney Higgs. So I just okay. put it on the album as, as kind of a joke. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I kind of regret it to this day. It was a silly thing to do. But hmm. um, I mean, that's the story. It was just a bit of uh, frivolity. Yeah, and then how was your experience with Lindsay? I've always I've always respected his songwriting and playing and stuff, and I've been a fan of his for a long time. I just how was your experience working with him? Um, you know, it was we didn't get along. Uh, well, well, we did and we didn't. So you know, yeah. Lindsay and I kind of um, putted horns a few a few times, um, and that was another reason for leaving. I think Lindsay wanted to take the band more in a kind of a blues direction. I mean, he and Tom Lavin were real blues guys. I mean, literally, yep. Lindsay has a PhD in, in blues. He, he went to university and wrote a 
wrote a thesis on the blues. So that that's really his mm. first love. And yeah. my thing was more coming from, you know, Beatles and ELO and, you know, arranged, you know, with parts that are prearranged and rehearsed. And Lindsay just right. wanted to sort of jam until it felt right. So we, we were coming from two very different directions. He's a pretty strong-minded very guy. Very strong-minded, but also very, very intelligent, very talented. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, huge respect for Lindsay. You know, we were two young, hot-headed guys with very different ideas about about music, and it, it just wasn't going to work. So yeah. one of us had to go, and I I bailed out. So then I was curious about the the business side of it. Like, did you have a publishing deal or a recording contract? Like, how did that all work? Because typically you'd have a, a band and they'd have a core writers or or the principals would have a record deal or some kind of publishing deal. How It must have been a bit of a, a mess there. With you know, so I have many no recollection people. of that at all. I mean, I, I just removed myself from the band. And okay. um, I mean, uh, Bruce Fairburn was the, was the business guy. He was kind of the, even though Bruce Allen eventually uh, managed Prism, uh, Bruce Fairburn up until that point was the business guy. And even after that. So mm. uh, whatever loose ends had to be tidied up, um, I'm sure the two of them took care of it. But how long ago was it? 40, 50 years ago? I, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I don't remember what yeah. what the fallout was. So you got your songwriting credits and just moved on? Yeah. I mean, the songwriting credits are, are in perpetuity. And you wrote Spaceship Superstar? You co-wrote that? No, I wrote that on my own. That's yours. Okay. That's great. Cause they, that, that, that's an awesome song. I've played it lots of times. And of course, when they did the space station, they played that. You I know, but about that that. And then, uh, and then of course you met Brian Adams. Now, Brian, of course, was very well known around Vancouver. I'm, I'm about his age. I think I'm a smidge younger than him, but, uh, you know, it would have been a natural fit for you, I guess, because he was really super eager. I mean, everybody knew how, how driven and how planned you talk about having a planned out career. I mean, he, he was very focused on what he wanted to do. And you were older. You brought a lot to the table for him, I would think, because you already had a track record, right? Yeah, I think it was a, a really good time for the two of us to to meet. I mean, I had just quit Prism, and he had just quit Sweeney Todd. And as you say, I was a bit older. I was 25, I think, and I'd already had a little bit of success in the in the Canadian music industry. Brian was 18, but, I mean, just boundless energy and hugely talented and driven. So. Yeah, it was a really good, um, a really good pairing. Yeah, because because Brian was looking for, I mean, he was one of those guys that was super. Bruce Allen said to him, said one time about Brian Adams, he would have been successful at anything because he was so driven to be that. I, I think so. Yeah, he's just unstoppable. I mean, he still is. He's sixty three, and he still has yeah. that same ambition and energy. And um, yeah, he's just he's one of those guys, and I've known a few of them. I'm very envious. There are these people who can squeeze 48 hours into 24. They just get so much done. Well, that's good. And it speaks well of him, but he, he was, you know, when you talk about your sort of being planned or happenstance or accident, I think someone like Brian really had a plan, right? I mean, he was focused on. Well, I, I don't know if he do. had a plan. He just wasn't going to stop. I mean, he just was yeah. driven. I don't think he had an actual template. I mean, neither of us really knew, again, back to sort of what the Beatles said, neither of us really knew what we were doing. We just tried to write the best songs we could write and, and yeah. hopefully, um, you know, get a record deal and have that take us somewhere. But again, none of it yeah. was planned or, or could have been planned. 
Well, I think young people, as the saying goes, young people don't know what they can't do. <laughs> yeah. so, they're, so they're not, you know, they don't have these encumbrances that other people might have. You yeah. know, they just don't know what they can't do. So they just assume, assume they can do it and they go out and do it. But again, I've met, you know, so many people who had great ambition, but no talent or lots of talent, but no ambition. There and, you go. And, and Brian just had loads of both. And then, so you got, you wrote Hiding from Love and, uh. Lonely Nights and Remember. Yeah, those were some of the early songs, yeah. Yeah, I still love Remember. We we played the Hard Rock Casino last weekend. We played it both nights. Remember yeah, that's that a pretty song. good song. That that's one of our very, Crazy. very early songs. And and yeah, when I listen back to that, I, I, I can enjoy it. It's powerful. Like, I play it for a room full of people, and, and they love it. I mean, it's it's just got that, um, the hook that every songwriter is looking for. And then you wrote, uh, you co-wrote Summer 69. I did, yes. And so... That's probably Brian Adams' career-defining tune, would you say? I think it is. I, I think um, I mean, whenever I've seen him perform live, that seems to be the song that, um, I mean, not the only one, because there are lots yeah, of songs that people enjoy from Brian's catalog, but that seems to be the one that's, uh, that really resonates, no matter where he plays it around the world. Well, yeah, and it's one of those songs you could let the audience sing the whole song because they know every <laughs> word. <laughs> Truly, and I've seen him almost do that, yeah. Yeah, well, that's... It, you know, it's interesting because I've asked certain artists, you know, I, I asked Ian Thomas, you know, what was your biggest song? And he said, well, that's not really the right question because my biggest song, you mean money-wise or the one that people know you for? Because you guys wrote lots of songs for, you know, that, that did well move for the movies or, or songs that, that may have done well commercially, but in terms of career-defining songs or the tune that everybody thinks about when you think about Brian Adams and Jim Balance, that, that's probably the song that comes to mind first. Yeah, I think that's the best way to, to, to put it is, yes, not Brian's biggest hit in terms of chart numbers or royalties, but it, it is the one that I think is sort of signature to his career. Yeah. So the songwriting thing, I'm, I'm always curious about that. I just wanted to ask you a few questions about that now that I got the opportunity, but did you have a natural knack for songwriting or was it learned? I'm not sure you can learn it. Um, hmm. I think you just, you're kind of compelled it, it it becomes a a thing you you have to do. It 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 won't let you go. Mm. So I, I know when when I was you know full on doing it every day. I'm not so much anymore. But when I was, it was almost like a voices in your head. You're just always thinking about melodies. You're always thinking about lyrics. Your your radar's up. Your your antennas up. You're listening to conversations and and imagining you hear a snippet and of of someone talking and think, oh, that sounds like a song title. You know, you're just always mm. in songwriting mode. So, yeah, it's 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 just a compulsion. It's something that that won't let you go. You have to do it. Yeah, John Fogarty said similar things about making little notes and mental notes. But I was curious about that too because of the co-writing. Like like someone like Gordon Lightfoot, like he he would lock himself in a room and just kind of construct his songs and and sort of dig deep into his musical sensibility and come up with these songs and other people co-write and co-writing is a different animal than that yeah i mean there's some you know Joni mitchell or bob dylan or bruce springsteen you know and, and gordon lightfoot um robbie robertson you know people who, who write on their own um and have come up with just absolutely stellar songs yes. and um, you know, back to your point, I, I wrote the Prism songs on my own, but since then, um, I've only collaborated. And I, I just find yeah. it so rewarding to sit in a room with another person and bounce ideas back and forth. And I mean, it's, you know, it's 
very much, you know, the, the two heads are better than one. I just think you're always going to get a better result if, if you have something. And Lennon and McCartney, I mean, McCartney to this day says, you know, Lennon was the guy that, that finished his songs, you know, just took them mm. to that next level. Yeah, and I guess they had a real sort of footprint. I mean, look what happened with the Stones too. Like when they when they tried to separate and go on their own, they were neither was nearly successful as they were together. Exactly. So there, there was some magic there. But but then for you, it's a different. It's got to be a different approach each time, right? You'd have to. Each person would have a different way of doing it. Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, writing with Brian or writing with Stephen Tyler is a you know very different thing. But you know the the sort of thing you're trying to accomplish is just write best possible song that sounds like Aerosmith it's for Steven Tyler. So I have to just put myself in that frame of mind. So I'm not, I'm not writing for me. I'm writing for, for him, almost yeah. trying to crawl inside his brain, you know, and, and, right. and compliment whatever ideas he comes up with. See, and that's the thing, like, for, for the difference between sort of writing for others and being a professional songwriter. I mean, there's there's songwriting factories, you know, like in, in L.A. Or, or Nashville. I mean, there's just really writing teams and writing machines. And, and it's, a, it's a different animal writing for someone else than just sort of the singer-songwriter. You mentioned Neil Young or Joni Mitchell or even Elton John. You know, he just wrote songs from his heart that he felt were good songs for him to sing. I mean, I have... You know, again, if you're sitting in the room with the person who's going to sing the song, I'm trying to think, you know, Alice Cooper or Ozzy Osbourne or um, you know the Glass Tiger guys, um, you know, you you you're writing for their next album, and and they're right there in the room with you, so chances are pretty good it's going to end up sounding like something that belongs on their album. Uh, the times that that I've been asked just to write a song for an artist who doesn't write, like, say, Tina Turner or Joe Cocker, you know, you're still trying to accomplish the same thing, which is write a song that sounds so much like it belongs on their album that they actually do mm -hmm. record it. Um, but they're not in the room. They're not with you. They're not writing with you. So you have to really kind of imagine, you know, their their creative space and what, what they want to do, what they want to sound like. You also want to move it forward, but not not lose the plot to the point that they don't record your song. Right. And that's, again, a different skill unto itself too, right? Trying to massage the, the, the songs to make them what they need to be. Yeah, it's, and then, yeah, it's a definite skill. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's really all about paying attention. I, I yeah. you know, I've done for uh, SOCAN and Songwriters Association and other organizations. I've, I've done sort of guest lectures and, and workshops over the years. And I just tell young songwriters, you know, it's it's like a, it's just like high school homework. You know, it's Monday, and the teacher says, "I need an essay by Friday, and it needs to be about this, 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 and this." Hmm. And you know, songwriting is, especially for writing a song for another artist, is very much like that. It's just you check the boxes, make sure you get everything that is required in terms of stylistically that that suits the the artist. And do the work and hand it in on time. And, you know, in high school, you, if you're lucky, you'll get an A. And in the real world, writing songs, you'll get the song on the album. But it's yeah. just doing the work, doing it smart. With, with some kind of internal sensibility, because not everybody can do it, as you, as you alluded to earlier. Yeah, and it's, and it's not as clinical as, as a high school essay. There's, there's got to be some heart and soul injected into it as well, and you have to really mean it. 
Well, yeah, it's interesting because Elton John was doing a seminar one time for some music students. It was at a university somewhere in the States. I can't remember where. And, uh, you know, he likes to have the lyric sheet, which he's given, and then he just writes the melodies over the lyrics. And and he acts like it's the easiest thing in the world. So he challenged somebody, has anybody got a textbook here? Somebody brought I saw up that. Yeah. yeah. You see that? I did. So he, he's going, oh, it's easy. This is easy. And he's playing a two, five pattern or a two, three, five. I don't know what he was playing, but it sounded pretty good actually. <laughs> well, he's that. just such a genius at that. You yeah. Know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, uh, great, uh, along the same lines, um, I uh, can't remember where I read this. It might have been in his in his book um, about uh, Rocket Man. I think they were at the Chateau in France. Bernie would get up early and put some lyrics on the piano, and Elton John would come down, have breakfast, then go sit at the piano and see whatever Bernie had left for him. And he would write it, and then they'd go directly in the studio and record it. So you know, a few hours later, he's showing the band this new song, Rocket Man. And I think uh, Davey, the guitar player, said, when, gosh, when did you write that? And he said, this morning. <laughs> so just remarkable, really remarkable. Yeah, he's just a natural genius. I mean, as far as singer-songwriters go, I think he's he would probably be the number one ever, Pretty in much, my yeah. view. Just awesome. Yeah. yeah. So then the other question I had for you is, how much of what you were able to do was a function of the time that you lived in? You know, everyone's a product of their time. And, and the year that you were born and the time that you came up, I mean, how much is it a function of that? Well, I'm, I'm sure it all factored in. I mean, I, I feel so fortunate to have been the age I was, uh, you know, when the Beatles came along, lit a fire for me creatively. And, um, and through my teens, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, having albums and artists like Hendrix just appear out of nowhere, and uh, you know, Chicago. You know all these amazing artists through my teens, and then into my twenties. It was still a very robust music industry, where yeah. you know it was before Napster, and people they wanted to hear a song, they actually went to the record store, paid for an album, and so there was lots of um, lots of money flying around. Not so much for you know the artists in earlier in your career, but my point is the record companies were flush. And, and they were willing to invest, you know, money in, in new bands, you know, take a chance, like throw money at four or five bands. And if one of them succeed, then the record companies made their money back. So there was yeah. lots of opportunity back then. I think well, that's, nowadays that's it's just, you know, there's no budget and there's so much music. And you know, with social media, it's just, you know, an overwhelming amount of, of product out there. So I think I grew up in a time when it was still, you know, possible to you know, write a song, get a record deal, and, and take that to the top of the charts. I, I, I wouldn't know where to start these days. That, that's kind of my overriding implication of the question is, could you do what you did then, today, if you were coming up today? And the answer is probably no. Yeah, I right? think you would just get lost in the shuffle. There's just, you know, everybody's doing it. And, yeah. And, you know, not to disparage, I mean, there's lots of kids who are doing it really well, but sort of infrastructure is not there to um, you know, give attention, enough attention yeah. required to, to really single you out. So will there ever be another Beatles? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I remember just being so impressed with them all through my teens and 20s. And I thought, you know, as I get older and more experienced, I'll have a better idea of how they did that. And 
you know what? I never did. I just, even all these years later, I listened to Abbey Road or Sgt. Pepper, and I just am in awe of what those four guys did. Well, the melodies, I mean, that's what my point has been many times is the melodies that those guys wrote. If I were to criticize modern music, I think a lot of it is is the lack of melody, that a lot of it's monotone, a lot of it's rehashed. I mean, you know, I asked John Capek when I was talking to him, you know, do you think that there's, when it comes to songwriting, do you think there's a, a saturation point? I mean, we only have 12 notes that we use. How many new melodies can there be? And there's also, you know, songs are melody and lyric but they're also chords and you know so much of today's music i i i hazard a guess that maybe 50% of songs that come out these days have the same chord progression you know the c g a minor f is just ubiquitous whereas you know the beatles had really interesting chord progressions i mean even earlier in their career if you listen to the opening of um, the song "If I Fell," it was just like insanely simple but complex chords. You know, the uh, E minor, E flat, D, B minor. I mean, who would have thought of that? It's just so amazing. And yeah, and the melodies that emerged from those chord changes. I know. And and conversely, I mean, this is the, the other amazing thing that I've, I've sort of done a small study on is. And again, this points to the importance of chords. Uh, some of John Lennon's songs were one note. And uh, like, for example, you know, All You Need Is Love. You know, all you need is love. That's like one note. But the chords are, you know, D major, E major, A. So the, the chords under that one note are, are what give it, give it life. And his song... Uh, Julia on the White Album. It's all one note. Half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you. All one note, but the chords under are C, A minor, E minor. So, again, back to the point that the chords are as important as, as melody. Yeah. So, but what about the saturation point? Do you think there is a point, like like with so many songwriters now, like you alluded to, and and, and so many people trying to come up with the next thing um at some point with the 12 notes that we use in our system it, it's not infinite right well maybe it is <laughs> I, don't, I don't know um i mean how far are we into you know the, the songwriting i guess you know, classical music kind of morphed into popular music in the early 1900s um so you know we're well over a hundred years of um, popular music. You know, occasionally there's a, a car crash, you know, when someone consciously or subconsciously steals somebody else's uh, sequence of notes, chords, and or lyrics. But there still seems to be a surprising number of, of, of new songs that, that carve out new melodies and chords. So I don't know, it, maybe it's not infinite, but I think there's always going to be songs that, that surprise us and delight us. Well, I, I would agree with that. I just, uh, you know, nowadays it seems to me, you know, this idea of plagiarism, like a lot of stuff is lifted. I mean, some of the country songs are just completely generic. I mean, I, I could give you the melody to, 
you know, a bunch of the country songs my wife puts on the country station. And I'm thinking that this is so generic. Like the, these, how could they not be suing each other for copyright infringement? Yeah, the the melodies are. are almost the same. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had a few, I've, um, I've been on both sides of, of the fence. I mean, I wrote a song with Steven Tyler, um, called take me to the other side. And the melody is very simple. A, B, C, D, E, you know, and, Motown sued us because it sounded like uh, standing in the shadows of love, A, B, C, D, E. And, you know, it was not the same song at all, but, you know, we had to, had to fight like crazy to sort of protect our side. But, you know, it's, it's that simple. If you, if you tread on anybody else's territory melodically, you're, you're, you're getting yourself into trouble. So you have to be very, very vigilant. Well, I guess, but it's it's increasingly more difficult to do that, isn't it? Yeah, I guess the more, uh, you know, back to your point, the more saturation, the, the more just, you know, maybe back in my day there were thousands of songs and now there are millions or billions. So... Um, well, and and especially with, with something like Nick Nashville as a songwriting factory, but a lot of the blues tunes, I mean, you and I both know the blues songs, you got three chords, you've got some kind of generic sort of melody that that's not a quote unquote original song. I mean, it's just so familiar and, and so re retreaded that you've heard that song a thousand times. Well, I, I still think there's always going to be, not that I endorse it, but you know, if someone does tread on your, your creative material, if, if someone's melody is too close to yours, um, I, th I think you have an obligation to um, protect your turf. And, and, and I've done it on, Two or three occasions. Have you? Yeah. yeah. Where people just, uh, what, what, what's their defense to that? They just say, well, it, it occurred to you, it occurred to me as well, independently? Um, one of them I had to really fight. I mean, in, you know, you, one, one of them was a slam dunk. It was a, I'm not actually allowed to discuss it. That was part of the, uh, the settlement. Once my people got in touch with their people, they, they agreed that they had copied a little too closely and, and they swore it was subconscious. And I, I believe that. But we did come to terms. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's it. There's a famous story of, of uh, Rod Stewart when he did Forever Young, right? I don't know and he got a call from Bob, from Bob Dylan. Oh, yes, yes. Saying, yeah. Yes. So they, I guess they settled that too. They just talked about it and settled it. Yeah. And, and, and it's lovely when that happens. It's just no drama. You know, you don't spend a bunch of money on lawyers. You just uh, agree that, yeah, sorry, I, I did borrow from you song a little too much. And then how about for you writing in different genres? Have you done any like, you know, jazz or light pop or country? Are you able to, like you said, you adjust to the artist you're writing for. How do you, how do you approach it when you're adjusting for the genre that you're writing for? I mean, I haven't cast that wide in that. I, I know my limitations, uh, you know, country in its purest form, even if you go back to Hank Williams or you know, some of the early pure country, you know, the songs are, Simple chord structures, simple melodies, um, but really, really clever. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes simple is the hardest thing to do. And uh, I don't um, assume that just because it seems or sounds simple that, that I can do that. It's a, it's a genre that has nuance, and I think you have to have grown up with it and, and know it intimately before you can even pretend to, to, to write it authentically. So I've, I've steered clear of country and I've steered clear of jazz because as much as I appreciate and enjoy those genres, I, I don't really feel 
that I am authentically capable of, of doing that. What I know, which is, you know, it's kind of rock and, and yeah. pop. And pop, yeah. And then it's just a matter of of style. And, and again, it's it's almost self-evident. If you're working with Alice Cooper, there's, you know, so much precedent for for his, his sound and his style. And, um, you know, Scorpions or, you know, any, any mm. number of bands I've yeah, I was, was going to say what John Fogarty said. He said, "I know my songs are simple, but it's the right simple. I'm looking for the right simple." Yeah, and I thought I it mean, was a good way to put it. His songs are brilliant, and they really, are really good. so simple. But I'll say it again: sometimes simple is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. So for you, the other thing is, like I talked to John Capek. He said, "He said when when you're a songwriter, you want to write anthems. You know, when you talk about the Beatles, I mean, Hey Jude, and, and certain songs that they have are just are just anthems. Is is that what your approach is? You try to write anthems. It's very hard to do that, right? Well, I think my approach is, is for a very very long time um, has been choruses is king. So, in fact, I've said many times to young songwriters when they've asked me to critique something they've written. What I say is, you know, once you've written your song, play it for somebody. Don't tell them the title. Just play them the first verse, the first chorus, and then stop it. And then ask them, what's the title of that song? And if they can't tell you the title, then you haven't done your job. So I think what your your job as a songwriter, and I don't mean this in a monetary sense, but your your job is to sell sell the idea. Just make it so compelling and so memorable and so infectious that Literally, after the first chorus, if a listener can't name the title of the song, then you you really haven't done your job. Yeah. Well, the other part of that is is trying to find something that sounds similar but different, to, like to fit in, but also to stand out. I mean, that's a fine line. A friend of mine had a quite a successful song, and the record company said, "Well, we want ten more songs like that," because <laughs> that was just. And he said, "Well, I don't want to do that. I want to write something that's similar but different and fit in but stand out." How do you how do you ride that line? I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I think you just have to keep challenging your, yourself. Um, of course, if you have success, the record company is going to want um, something similar. But uh, I think you just have to be true to yourself. I mean, I'll, I'll tell a tell a story here. It's a little bit telling a story out of school, but I won't name any names. But um, uh, the first Glass Tiger album, we'd finished mixing it, and the we knew the first single was going to be uh, Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone. And we spent a little bit of extra time mixing that with an engineer from L.A. called Ed Thacker. And the Canadian record company were really thrilled. And so they had the um, a fellow from Capitol Records in New York fly up to hear the, the album. And we played Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone. And he said, it's great, but you're going to have to do a another mix for the U.S. market. I said, well, what, what would you do different? He said, it just needs to be a little, little edgier. We had a little bit of a talk about it, and I didn't ever really fully comprehend what, what he was looking for. After all, the record guys, record company guys left the room, sitting there with the band, and we just like, we'd spent so much time and put so much care into our mix that honestly, we didn't know what we could do different. So the next morning, I put exactly the same mix in a box and wrote um, American mix on it and, <laughs> and sent it over, and they loved it. Yeah, interesting. And and again, I mean, those songs, but th- those songs, are they stand out, right? Like like when you write songs, if, if you've written 100 songs, how many hits do you get from those? You want the ones that are, are sound familiar, sound similar, but are different and stand out. That's the challenge, right? Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know how many hundreds of songs I've written, but I've had maybe 20 or 30 that were pretty big. Um, and then, you know, hundreds that weren't. Um, but I've never, ever once sat down and said, you know, let's write a really bad song today. You know, every time I sit down, I, I do my very best to write a, a good song. And you can't plan anything. You can just do your best work. And you sometimes you know when you've kind of done something pretty special, but, but you just never know. So you just try and do your best work every time out, and it's over. To I guess, but when you're in your position, you're you, there must have been some pressure there too to come up with. You know, we need a single like like what when Prism went down to the states, and you guys you guys did don't let them go for them, right? Because they had a problem in the in the U.S. that the record company said you don't have a single. We need a single. I mean, that's been the story of my life. Is is you know record companies saying we need a single? So I mean, I've always pretty much always tried to write a single. You know, when Brian and I were working on Reckless, I think we got seven singles off that album. And and again, you know, it was our intention to just try and write songs that would, you know, find their way onto the onto the radio. Not to be too clever, uh, but not to be too sort of insipid either, but somewhere in between, just find something that was, you know, catchy and incredible. Well, I guess that's the key. I mean, you want to find things that resonate. So a song like Summer 69 resonates with basically everybody. It and, does. and I guess, so you want to analyze the difference between the songs that you wrote, lots of good songs that never became hits, and then the ones that did, what is it? They resonate with people in a, in a special sort of way in that musical sensibility that people have. But I mean, Summer 69, I mean, the funny thing about that song is uh, we wrote it, and... It actually wasn't called Summer 69. It was called uh, Best Days of My Life. The, the lyric, Summer 69, uh, we hadn't stuck it in the song yet. So we, we kind of listened for a bit and thought, well, the song isn't finished. So we added the lyric, Summer 69, to it. So now it's got a, a stronger title. And then we thought about the arrangement a lot, like it was going to be chunky guitars, jangly guitars, a bit of both. And we did three demos in the basement and we still didn't feel we'd got it right so so brian took it in the studio and recorded it with his band and we still didn't think it was right and we came very close to leaving it off the album um but it went on anyway honest to god you know what is it 40 years later i hear it on the radio and i can't remember what we didn't like about it but we were really convinced at the time that it just wasn't it wasn't ready for for release, so you know you can you can overthink things. You can you know you're not always the best judge of your of your own material, um, but nor can you always take other people's advice. Um, again, not to name names, but a, a very very high placed uh, record industry guy in Los Angeles suggested Brian not put the song Heaven on the Reckless album. He said you don't you don't need a ballad; it should all be rockers, and and that was actually. In terms of chart success, that was the biggest song on the album. Great song. So, you know, who do you listen to? Do you trust your your own instincts? Do you listen to other people? I mean, it's it's just um, <laughs> the whole thing. Again, it, it, it's a mystery. You you don't ever really fully know what you're doing. It's just yeah, just yeah. Good point. Just do your best work, you know. But the other thing about a song like Summer '69, it's multi generational too, which is is the ultimate for a songwriter. I mean, I don't listen to songs that my parents listened to in the '40s and '50s. 
um, yet Summer 69 can come on and somebody that's 18 years old will be singing it and knows every lyric to it. Well, you know, I mean, what a gift that is. And again, yeah. we, we couldn't have planned that. But yeah. uh, I'm so grateful that that song still has legs all these years later. It's just oh, yeah. uh, it's a miracle. And then you wrote um, part of, of, you co-wrote What About Love for Heart? I did, yeah. Yeah. And were you involved in the recording of that at all? Or No, I wasn't. And that's another really, really interesting story. So um, it was 1982. Uh, I got a call from a record company in Toronto uh, wanting me to co-write a band called Toronto. And um, so I went back and um, you know met them and we hung out for a bit. And then one night I went over to the, the guitar player there were two guitar players in the band, Brian and Sharon. And I went over to their house one night and and we went down to their little studio. And they said, you got any, any ideas? And I said, I've just got this one idea. And it's almost like that John Lennon thing we talked about a minute ago. I said, I've got this idea. It's just one note. But it's, what about love? I said, that's, that's all I got. And so the three of us, about two hours later, we just took that little humble beginning, and literally two or three hours later, we had we had the song completed, and took it to the band and the record company. They didn't like it, so the song didn't make it on the album, and it literally sat on a shelf somewhere. Nineteen eighty-five. So three years later, I got a phone call from a, a record guy in Los Angeles, Don Grierson. And he said, congratulations, you got the first single on the new Heart album. What, what song is that? And he said, what about love? I was like, oh my God, I, I'd forgotten about that song. So somehow it had made its way from Toronto to Los Angeles. And actually it was um, Mike McCarty, who was working for EMI Publishing at the time. He got a hold of the song and he thought it sounded like a, like a hit. So he sent it, sent it to Don Grierson. And Don Grierson sent it to Ron Nevison, who was producing Heart. And uh, they were in Seattle. Ron was in Seattle rehearsing with the band. And he played, I didn't hear this story until years later, but he played the demo for Anna and Nancy. And Nancy got up and walked out of the room and said, I'm not recording that song. And Anne said, I hate it. And... Ron said, look, you guys, I, th I think it's a hit. Do me a favor, record it. If you still hate it, I promise I won't put it on the record. And, I mean, you know the rest of the story. They recorded it, and it was actually their, their comeback hit. And Anne's voice is just fantastic. Oh, she's so amazing. No, well, good. Well, that, that's, thanks for sharing that. That's a great story, and, and what a great song, and, and what an odd way, I guess, I guess you, you get lucky sometimes and just the connections that you've made and the songs that are out there and you don't even realize it. Well, you know, so many of my songs have similar stories where they just, right out of the gate, it was just nothing looked like it was going to happen. And then somehow yeah. it gets to the right person at the right time and, and off it goes. So yeah. Yeah, again, you know, I don't think you can plan anything. You can wish and hope and you can work hard, but nothing yeah. is a given. 
Well, the other thing that struck me about, you know, researching your story as, as I was preparing for this is how many different sort of situations, like sometimes you're fully involved and sometimes you're playing on the record. Sometimes you're, I guess, co-producing or co-engineering or just involved in the studio. And other times you're just completely removed from it. Yeah, it's, it's different every time. I mean, you know, I'm not like super good at any one thing, but I can do a lot of things sort of okay. I can arrange, I can play, I can write. So, you know, again, I, I if the Sunshine Band way back in the day had voted the least likely to succeed, I knew that. And and so I just worked harder and worked smarter. Yeah. And, and I, I credit that with any success I've had. And, and you obviously didn't like touring or playing live. That wasn't your goal was to be a, a live entertainer touring all over the world? No, again, I think I, I got my my taste of it with that first tour with Prism. And it, it just, I knew that's not what I wanted to do. So from that point on, I just, you know, built a studio in my basement. And, yeah. and that, that was my workspace for. for you never career. thought of moving to the States or anything? Did you ever move to LA or New York or anywhere? I actually live in New York at the moment. Oh, okay. So has that been your sort of center for success? Uh, not really. I ended up down here uh, again to, you know, sort of challenge myself and, and try new things. Um, Brian and I wrote a Broadway musical based on the movie Pretty Woman. Yes, Pretty Woman, yeah. I and did see that. I spent quite a few years in New York uh, developing that and, and writing it and rewriting it and getting it on stage. So um, I, I just stayed. It just ended up kind of being <laughs> where, I, where I hung my hat. So are you a happy guy? Are you happy? Yeah. I mean, COVID kind of sucks. I mean, yeah. I haven't got it yet. Um, yeah. But the reason I haven't got it is I've been pretty much isolating. You know, I haven't been mm. to a concert or a club or even a restaurant for about three years. So, yeah. wow. you know, yeah, but uh, all for just trying to stay healthy. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I was a lot happier when I could jump on an airplane and go anywhere I wanted without fear of, um, you know, getting sick. Or dying, even who knows. Yeah. Uh, so, in in that way, it's been a little bit of a you know a bummer the last two or three years. But uh, I just always look on the bright side. There's just always so much to be grateful for. And uh, gosh, we don't live in Ukraine. I mean, you know, so um, there's so little to complain about, really. So, yeah, I'm I'm happy, yeah. absolutely. Well, no, I, the reason I ask that is because I've talked to so many people who were, were successful and, and ended up not in a good place in life. Oh, and, gosh. and it's sad, you know, um, I guess the drugs and booze, I mean, I don't know how that much that factored into your life. But I mean, zero. I, I'm not a, yeah. a, a druggie or never, never yeah. was, you know, so, yeah. um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 70. I'm, yeah. I, if I don't look in the mirror, I feel 30. <laughs> um, good for you. Yeah, no, I, I'm and I'm grateful for all the good things that have that have come my way. Yeah, no, I, that's that's a good a good view on things. It's funny because the, the whole drugs and booze thing. I was going to ask you about that because in popular music, I mean, it's an integral part of of a lot of the recordings and stuff. And I've read tons of biographies and autobiographies, and from Brian Wilson to the Allman Brothers to Clapton and Slash and. And it's just the heroin diaries, you know, it's just a terrible thing. And there was this terrible quote in the Allman Brothers book where one of the guys said that, that heroin was the key that unlocked the vault to where all the good songs were. And I thought like, that can't be true. That has I to be wrong. I can't buy into that. I don't know. Maybe for somebody, maybe that's, 
what, what works. But I mean, I've also been lucky, you know, all the hundreds of collaborations I've done, there's really been no issues with any of the people I've worked with. If they had any drug issues, I was unaware of it. And in fact, um, um, I mean, the first time when Bruce Fairburn asked me if I wanted to work with Aerosmith, um, I was aware of all the, the horror stories. And, I, and he said, well, the good news is they've just all come out of rehab. They're all clean and sober and in a really good place. And I said, well, then count me in. And it was true. Yeah, that's they right. really were um, you know, energized and they had a second lease on life. Yeah, they were clean by then. But then when you listen to, when you read Clapton's book, you know, when they recorded Layla, they said there were drugs in the studio. They were anything you wanted. It was just a drug-fueled orgy of music and dope and whatever. It was just terrible. I just thought to myself, well, I would never be around that. Like, I couldn't live that lifestyle. No, same here. I, I've, um, you know, I, I don't know if I've consciously done it, but, uh, you know, I would, I would choose my friends and, and collaborators based on their, their life choices. So, yeah, yeah no, that's oh, never been cool. um, part of my life, and I've been pretty much shielded from it um, in all the collaborations I've done. Yeah, good for you. So besides music, you've got some other cool stuff on your website, like the, when you built the Armory Studio and you did a thing on Lennon's history and you did some family history and stuff, that you're a, a, quite a, a deep thinker and a, an interesting guy. So you got some cool stuff on there. Yeah, I like, I like doing research. Uh, I love history. I love reading. Uh, I love travel. And I'm looking nice. forward to when you know, COVID is behind us, I can get back on an airplane again and go anywhere I want. So. Um, yeah. You know, it's a it's a really big, fascinating world out there. So, what's your bucket list? What do you got left to do? Um, you know, I'm continuing. Um, it's been a lifelong hobby researching uh, family history, genealogy. I've got some branches of my family researched all the way back to the 1400s, and I just get so so inspired just learning about my ancestors and what their life must have been like. Just the, those kind of things fascinate me. So, yeah. I'll, I'll always pursue that. Nothing makes you more grateful than studying history. Truly. Because we live in a time that's very blessed. We're very, peace and prosperity has been a blessing to us. I, I agree. And I hope yeah. we keep it that way. Many thanks to my guest, Jim Valance, for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his many musical adventures and accomplishments. Uh, more information is available at jimvalance.com. There's lots of cool stuff on there. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hammond.